How's everybody good? Everybody's good? It's summertime. It's almost, we're kind of winding down. Yeah, I love these summer series. Like we've done uh, First and Second Peter, I think, um, you know, a couple years ago, doing First and Second John, um, and kind of treating it like, uh, you know, like we're, we're a smaller group than we are. Um, and having a Bible study is, is great for my heart. Um, it's great as we um, traverse uh, some difficult passages and the challenging uh, things that, um, you know, John has had to say uh, to the church and to us. I think it's been so good, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. And today's no different, and you'll see why. Uh, but I did want to say I love you guys to death, Mary Beth and Chris. They've been a, both of them together are like this you know, unit of just amazingness in student ministry. And like Leslie said, just um, amazing cheerleaders for the church. And, uh, you know, you're always, you know, there's a lot of times in ministry where you're st- staring out at, at uh, faces that are just kind of like this. And they, not because, you know, you mean to do it, um, but it happens. Uh, and that was, it's never Mary Beth, it's never Chris. Um, and they always, like, raise the temperature in the room and the excitement for, for what we're doing, not... Um, just for hype, but because they believe that Jesus is alive from the dead. And why wouldn't we be excited about that? And I love to be reminded of that all the time. And I'll, I'll miss that on the, on the daily, on staff. Um, but you live on my street. So, I mean, you can't get away from me. So if you ever quit going here, it'll be real awkward. Um, so, uh, but man, I tell you what, if you got your Bible, turn me to 2 John chapter 1. And, uh, you know, this passage right here, like if you're, if, if you're, I said this in the first gathering, like if, if you're a visitor, you're welcome. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the Antichrist today. So we're going to read this passage. You know, it's one of those things, it's like you could easily say, you know what, this isn't, the, let's do this in a smaller format. You know, let's have a Wednesday night service and talk about the Antichrist there. Sunday morning might be a little difficult, but we're going to read this passage and we're going to, we're going to break it down because I've been talking about it all summer. Like I've been skipping all the, and I know the people that are like, walking through the passages and they're like, why is he skipping the stuff on the Antichrist? I want to talk about it. Well, this is for you, the three of you that are here. Um, but let's read it together and then we're going we're gonna to break this down. And what's good about the Bible, what's amazing about the Bible uh, is that no matter what we're digging into, it always is good for us. It's good for correcting. It's good for rebuking. It's good for teaching. It's good for changing the way that we think. It's good for filtering our lives in ways that we uh, we, we weren't aware of. So there's nothing that we come across in Scripture, even things that you know, might leave us in a place of not understanding it all. Uh, there, there's, there's never a point at which we're like, yeah, that doesn't make, you know, we don't need to read that or we don't need to look at that. Even the genealogies in the Bible, I think sometimes we, you know, we go through those in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we think, you know, what is this for? But if you really begin to study that, the context that genealogies give you on the whole narrative arc of Scripture is Amazing. So um, let's have that mindset as we dig into this and we as we dig into this passage. We're starting in verse six, and I love how John starts out this way. He says, And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I like that kind of you know, the, the, the flip on that, like he's saying, you know, this is love. If if you if if you are connected to God, if you love God, then you're gonna obey his commands. But guess what is you know, his command is that you walk in love. So it's kind of a, a two-in-one thing where he's making that point. He's been doing that. If you've been with us this summer, John has been making sure that every all of the tough teaching that he has is all wrapped in, not to take the edge off, but he wants to make sure that the priority of the church carrying the banner of love is the most important thing. 
Like he, he wants to make sure our doctrine is solid, that we are on the solid foundation of truth. But he also wants to know, wants everyone to know that we want to, this, this isn't something we beat over you know, each other's head, this, this truth, this doctrine, these commands. But we want to make sure that the most important thing is that inside the church that we're loving one another, that we're taking the love that's been given to us and we're loving one another, and that when people see us, the one thing that marks us, the one thing that, that people know about us as the church is that those are people that love better than anybody. What is it that's inside of them that makes them extend love? So he always caps it that way. And then he hits verse 7. He says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Here we go, right? Like, what does that mean? Is there one antichrist or are there lots of antichrists? We're going to get to that. So he says, many of these, so there's these deceivers that have gone out into the world and these deceivers are considered the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you, that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now listen to this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. So if people don't believe the way that I believe, I can't welcome them into my house. What does this mean? If anyone welcomes them and share, they share in this wicked work or their wicked work. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here, right? You've got the Antichrist. You've got, you know, don't associate with the unbeliever. Don't welcome them to your house. You know, if you do, then you're going to be associated with the wicked work that they do. I mean, there's a lot of things that we've got to unpack. But first, I gotta, we got to unpack the, the term Antichrist, because it's in multiple places in First and Second John. And I think it's one of those, I was just talking to my daughter, Ella, not on stage just now, but at home. And we were bringing up this idea of the Antichrist. Like, what do, you, what do you think and know and believe about the Antichrist? And she gave me a couple of things. But she's like, for the most part, we don't talk about it in the church. Like, it's not one of those things that's, now, if you grew up in the church, it was talked about, right? If you grew up in the Baptist church or a Pentecostal church, I mean, there was, I mean, what, think, I, I, I this is a Bible study. Like we're from a sm- If I was in a small group with you, I would ask this question. Like when, when you hear the word antichrist, what comes to mind? Like what do you think about? Just start shouting stuff out. It's fine. Scary. What else? Like what do you think about when you hear the antichrist? Anybody? End times. Thank you so much. Engagement, right? End times. Like the rapture, you know? Tribulation. Like when's that going to happen? You know, it's one of those things that's it's kind of avoided now in our, like in 2022, you just don't hear tons of talks, depending on the church you're in, I guess, tons of talks on the tribulation, on the scary nature of the Antichrist. I mean, I think about, because of the way that I grew up, like it, the omen. I don't know if, I mean, anybody in here is that old, like Gregory Peck, like, you know, hey, you know, I just remember in the trailer, he's a little kid too, it's so sad, he's the Antichrist, and, you know, he's super cute, but he's evil, and then all of a sudden by the end of it, but it's like the same, every time something bad would happen, you'd see him just go, you know, look at you and you like, just made you shudder watching this movie. 1976, I date myself. It's old. Gregory Peck. I mean, that's, it's old stuff. But yeah, the whole 666 and, the, you know, unpacking the book of Revelation and end times. And, you know, I always think about like the tribulation house, like those things, the, the Turner burn type 
church gatherings? Anybody remember that kind of stuff? No? Everybody's real quiet. I'm like, I remember that. Like instead of Halloween, you had trunk or treat, right? And you had tribulation house. So instead of like having haunted houses, you had tribulation house where the rapture had already happened. And, and some people had disappeared and been raptured up. And there was all these poor people that were left on earth. And you walk through the tribulation house, there'd be like plane wrecks because the pilot obviously was a Christian and he was raptured up and then left all these people on the plane that didn't know Jesus and it crashed. And there's like little kids that, you know, like they have, you know, have costumes on. They look like they've been burned. They're like, where's my mommy? And then everybody just you know, converts to Christianity out of fear, right? At the end of the tribulation house, they have the, the guides that's like, yeah, do you see this? You could be left behind, you know, and you give your life to Jesus. And it's not, not I'm not saying it in an awesome way. So uh, that's what I, when I think of the Antichrist, it gets associated with end times, with something that's scary. So I want to I wanna remove that from, I know it's hard to remove that from, from our thinking. Now there's the evil side of the Antichrist, absolutely something that we need to attach to the doctrine. And there's other things that are, that are packed in here that we need to think about. But I think some of the hokey and more kooky things, I, I want to kind of pull that out because there's some, the roots of the words weren't meant to be what we kind of have made them become, if you, if you know what I mean. So let's head there. In the passage, I want to unpack a few things. I want to answer three questions. And I've tried to pick ones that I'm thinking, okay, if I was... These are the questions that I would want answered. One is, who is the Antichrist, the person, and this, it seems like multiple Antichrists. If we look at all of the, these passages where it's mentioned in, in, in uh, First and Second John, it's like there's something called the spirit of the Antichrist. There's the Antichrist or these deceivers, these many, this kind of corporate Antichrist. And there's a singular Antichrist, right? Like the, the person of the Antichrist at the, you know, in end times. So who is the Antichrist and who are the Antichrists mentioned? Um, how do we interpret these harsh words and treatment for the unbelievers mentioned in this passage? Like, are we not supposed to associate with people that don't believe what we believe? Because it says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching, the core doctrine that Jesus was born of a woman, he's born in the flesh, but he was God, he walked perfectly on planet earth, and then he died um, for the redemption of the world. He, he, he bled. He took our place, death, burial, and resurrection, the core doctrine of the church. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what does he say? Do not take them into your house or welcome them. So secondly, how do we interpret these harsh words and treatment for unbelievers? Are we not supposed to hang out with them? What does this mean? Um, and then thirdly, as we look at a passage like this and we talk about the Antichrist, we talk about what we see in this passage, why does this even matter? Like, why are we reading this? How is this relevant for you and I today? I think that's a, a reasonable question to answer. So here we go. All right, first one. Who is the Antichrist and the Antichrists uh, mentioned in First uh, and Second John? Well, let's first look at the passages where it is found. Now, I just want, just up front, the Antichrist is like, it, the, the, the term Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. You don't see it anywhere. It's nowhere else but in First and Second John. Some people think it's like, oh, that's what we see in the prophecies in Daniel, and that's what you see in Revelation. There's mention of the person of the Antichrist, but the term Antichrist is not in there. It's in these passages. Uh, we just read one, Second John 1.7, right at the top. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and an Antichrist. That's right there. First John 2.22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. 
Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. And then 1 John 4, 3. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is, and he names something different here, the spirit of the Antichrist, which is, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Okay, so that starts to throw some things. So there's some things that we can see in just trying to clarify. Let me just do, do a little summary. I didn't do this for, for nine, but I, I want to, we see that the anti, there's, there's this corporate Antichrist that's mentioned in First and Second John. Like it's this, the, the spirit of the Antichrist. There's this thing that's basically this walking away from doctrine and it's represented by this term, Antichrist, and it's the, the term that John chooses to use. So it kind of answers, starts to answer the question, is there just one Antichrist or is there many? And the answer to that question is yes, there's both. And we'll see that as we kind of dig in. So let's look at some simple clarity on the Antichrist and the Antichrist. One, the references, if you're wanting to, to do some further study and, and dig in and find out where, where this whole idea came from, where we find it in Scripture holistically, like the, if, you know, across the landscape, because it is in a lot of different places. We find it in Ezekiel, Daniel, 2 Thessalonians, 1 John, 2 John, and in Revelation. Now, again, like I said, the word and the term Antichrist is only in 1 and 2 John. Um, there may be some translations that insert that term uh, in other areas, but in the ESV and the NIV and in root Greek translations, the Antichrist, the only, that term is only used in in uh, 1st and 2nd John. Now, as far as a definition, now this is, this is, this is going to simplify it for everybody. When we're talking about the person of the Antichrist, like this, this person to come, the one that we've talked about, you know, within, you know, when we talk about the end times, and that's where this, this term, terminology, I think people connect it to, uh, and this is why. Because according to the Bible, and what we can deduce from Scripture, what we see in Scripture when you read it starts in Daniel. Daniel's probably one of the most descriptive, and then you can easily attach what's said in Daniel to Revelation about the person of the Antichrist. According to the Bible, what we can deduce from Scripture, the Antichrist is a man. He's mentioned in Scripture, and he will assume power right before Jesus comes back, the second coming. What Dave talked about last week, that Jesus is going to back. We've experienced redemption in and through the cross, but full redemption we're still waiting on. There's still pain in the world. There's still sin in the world. There's still cancer in the world, sickness and death. There's still, you know, there's the, even the penalty of, of sin has been paid for, but the power of sin still exists. God's going to redeem that. Jesus is going to return, wipe every tear from every eye. Things are going to change. There's going to be a full redemption and that is something that is to come. So when we look at this, according to the Bible, we can deduce that this guy, this Antichrist figure, is going to assume power on planet Earth. He's going to be in a powerful position, if not the most powerful position, right before Jesus returns. And he will be two things, a deceiver and a persecutor of Christians. So when you look at the, holistically, when you look at Scripture, this, this is what we need to know. We need to know that this person is, they're not, this isn't like a, 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 a demon that's going to be all of a sudden come up out of the earth and you're going to see him and they're going to be like, and we're all going to know. This is a, somebody that's a deceiver. Christians, people, that, there's people in, in the church, there's going to be pastors, there's, there's going to be a deception that's going to happen. 
in that process. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll, you'll get that sense that there's this deception that that, that person is going to be well-liked. They're going to be on the world stage. They're going to be on the political side of things. There'll also be a false prophet that is in the church side of things, but this will be on, more on the political side. There'll be a problem solver on the world stage, well-liked. But the, the thing that you have to remember is there'll be a deceiver. They'll deceive people. People will like them, and then there'll be persecution on the backside of their reign. That's, that's the simple side of the person of the Antichrist. Paul brings up this person in 2 Thessalonians, calls him the son of lawlessness. Like he will end up, you know, acting like he's going to bring order to the world, and actually it's going to bring more chaos and lawlessness. And, and um, one of the things that's misunderstood, because the, these passages, in, when, when you read it in 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul talks about the, the end times. He talks about when Christ returns. He talks about you know, you know, what we should be doing as the saints as we're anticipating Christ's return. And I think in, in the past, I think it's, this, people have preached out of 2 Thessalonians and preached the end times and injected fear into the conversation. Like we need to, there's certain things that we need to do to prepare ourselves to get ready for the end times. Now, spiritually, I think that's true. Like, we should be anticipating Jesus coming back. We should be super excited about the fact that there's this, we have this glorious hope, this glorious future, that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of death, in the midst of cancer, in the midst of disease, in the, in the midst of circumstantial strife here on planet Earth, that, that, that this isn't the end of the story. That absolutely should be our heartbeat. We should carry the gospel with that type of joy. But people will preach out of 2 Thessalonians this end times talk and inject fear. And that we're all kind of looking around, waiting for the haints and boogers to jump out of the bushes. And, you know, oh, the end times are coming. And what's interesting about 2 Thessalonians, if it's correctly and exegetically preached, is that the Apostle Paul, when he mentions this, this is the, the passage that, where he mentions the Antichrist. Listen to this. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For the day will not come, talking about the, the end of days, like when, when Jesus returns, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So he's saying the day, end times won't happen until you see the Antichrist, until you see this man of lawlessness, until you see this guy who's going to be politically liked, he's going to be a world stage problem solver, but a deceiver and a persecutor. Until this guy is, it's obvious to everyone that he's in power. The end's not coming. Why is Paul saying that? Well, if you read the whole of 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, is, he's, he's done with the, the, the kooky end times talk is what's happening. And you read it, and what the Apostle Paul is saying is, hey, all the people, there's, and at the time, people were quitting their jobs. People thought, there was, there was rumors that Jesus was coming back in the next month or the next year. People had dates. They had picked out dates and said, Jesus is coming back on this date. Can you imagine people doing that? I can't imagine anybody. Anybody gotten those newsletters? I mean, I definitely, I grew up and I remember, I don't remember exactly the date. I think it was 1997. I think so. Uh, I was in ninth grade. Was I? No, not 87. I'm sorry. Um, in 87, he was coming back, Jesus was coming back on a, a date in September 
all I remember, the only reason I remember is my mom was into that, had read The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and like the rapture was going to happen, Jesus was coming back, particular date in September, it was the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, it was all like everybody had figured it out, they had done some numerology in the Bible, and this is the date, Jesus is coming back. I mean, despite the fact that Jesus said you won't know the day or the hour, like don't be trying to figure it out because you won't know, people still try to figure it out. And my mom was, you know, on board with all of it. And I was going to a Def Leppard concert. And she's like, please, please do not go see Def Leppard. Oh, and I'm like, I am going, Mom. You're not. Jesus, he's going to come there just like he goes anywhere else. If you believe, we faith, grace, all that stuff. You know, I know I have skull suspenders on and I'm cool going to my Def Leppard concert. But, yeah, that was a picture. Um, yeah. But anyway, there's dates, you know. I mean, Prince knew. 2000 party over, out of time. You know what I'm saying? And we knew. We, we, we knew something was going to happen, you know? We better party. Um, there, was, there was all kinds. 2012 was another one, the Mayan calendar. People were like, oh, it's all coming down. Uh, but same thing was happening then. And the Apostle Paul was saying, hey, you ha- you've forgotten, because he had taught the church at Galatia the same thing. He had given them some some context to what Jesus had led them to and the prophecies of uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, knowing that the end times were going to be, there were some things that were going to have to happen. And Paul's like, it's real simple for you guys. Stop. And people were literally selling all of their stuff, quitting their jobs, mooching off of other families in the church. And they were like, decide, they were like, we, we all got to move away. We got to get away from everybody. We got to do this stuff. They ceased to carry the gospel. You know, evangelism wasn't happening anymore and everything was kind of dying and everybody was just sitting around and having weird, strange talks about the end times. And the Apostle Paul's like, I've had enough. And so he preaches this sermon and writes this letter to the, the church at Thessalonica and says, stop it. This is gonna have to happen first. And what's funny is, and I, I love that it's there because I don't have to be the person that says, stop going berserker like we should know about the end times we should be anticipating we should have a a glorious hope in our hearts that we will at one point we should read revelation with this unbelievable picture in our eyes of worshiping the slain lamb that we see in revelation i mean we should we should read those passages and know and anticipate we there's going to be things that we read and they're confusing and interesting in scripture that's amazing but if we get hung up on and spend this time Locked into end times talk. We'll forget that, that, that Jesus set us ablaze with a mission. Second Corinthians chapter 5. That you, you are the ambassadors of Christ. Because he has restored you. Because he's loved you. Because he's extended you grace. Because you have the ministry of reconciliation. You now carry this ministry of reconciliation to the rest of the world. These people had ceased to do that. And I've grown up and that's happened. I've been to churches. Been, been places. Been around people. I'm like... You're too wound up in the, the weird talk about the Antichrist and the end times. And the Apostle Paul's like, look, I'm going to talk about the end times and the Antichrist, but for the purpose of you to stop talking about it. He says, you're not going to know, and guess what? It's not going to happen until this man of lawlessness appears and he takes power. He's not here, so stop it. And he told everybody else, he said, if people continue to quit their jobs, sell all their stuff, and mooch off the church, boot them out of the church. Because you love them, not because you hate them, because they need that correction. I mean, he was frustrated. And for us, I think it's a good thing for us to look at and understand and know that there's some specific things that we can read in Scripture that, that give us that indication of when, you know, when, when, when is time to, to think about certain things and when it's not time. 
and what we need to be distracted by, and then we shouldn't be overcome with fear, like unwarranted distracting end times conversations. And there's things in the Bible that we're not, we're not going to completely know and understand, too. Like you're going to read certain things. There's things that are incomplete. Like I wish I had the rest of the conversation between Peter and Paul when it came to certain things in the Bible. But that's purposeful. You know, I read this quote by John Piper talking about the things that, you know, he wishes like that God would have put in the Bible, but God didn't. He says, God does not see to it that everything in the early church that, um, that, that the disciples talked about or the apostles talked about that we get to know. I take this to be the work of God's wisdom and goodness. We have what we need for salvation and God-pleasing obedience. We don't have enough to answer all of our questions. We're not meant to. I mean, it's just like there's certain conversations you're going to wait with your kids. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not time. We're going to give you limited information because you don't need the other information. It's just going to be a distraction to you. I mean, we sometimes didn't tell our kids that we were going like to somewhere special because we just were like, we, wanted to, we didn't want them to know. We're like, everybody get in the car. Where are we going? We're not going to tell you. Because we knew that if you told them they were going to Disney World, then they would be like, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, it would be crazy. So limited information for you because that's all you can take right now. And God did the same thing for us. There's certain things that he's like, this is what you need for glad obedience and to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. I've given you exactly what you need. And the Bible's pretty big. It takes a little bit of time to read. So if we go on and we look at, that's the Antichrist. So the person of the Antichrist, we realize he's coming. That's going to be the, at the end of days, the man of lawlessness. He's a deceiver. The two things you're going to remember is what? He's a deceiver in the beginning. He's going to lead Christians away. He's going to lead people in the church away. And he's going to be a heavy persecutor. He's going to be cruel in that way. All right. Now, we get this spirit of the Antichrist. Like, uh, right there at the beginning of this passage that we read, 2 John 1, 7, he says, I say this because many deceivers. So then you've got this idea of there's many, many Antichrists. They've gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. 1 John 4, 3 says the same thing. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So there's this almost sense or spirit or kind of cultural thing that's going to happen where there's going to be the spirit of the Antichrist. And when you look at this word that's used in First and Second John, it is, I mean, the, the, the meaning is against Christ. Now, it can mean replacement for Christ, like anti can be replacement. But where you see it used here in this passage, it's anti, it's against in other words, I'm against the things of Jesus. I'm against the doctrine of Jesus. I'm against the fact that he was born of a woman or born in the flesh. I'm against the fact that he, he was a, a human. You know, we, Back then they thought he might have been a spirit being. A lot of people were doing that in the church. One of the reasons John used the language that he used about Jesus in the flesh over and over again was they thought he's this, it's, a, it's a spirit thing. Jesus is a spirit thing. This is a mystical thing. And he was trying to correct that poor theology. But there's the spirit of the Antichrist, which is this attitude and spirit that is opposed to Jesus and the fundamental beliefs about him. And we know that they're, they're all over the world, according to this pas passage, like the people and this spirit, this idea, this, this almost sense. And it, it kind of does, it kind of registers with me when I think about this. And, the, and it was happening in the first century and it's happening now, right? I mean, that's what you get I mean, if you think about where we are in culture, in the world that we're in, the spirit of the Antichrist. Again, when you hear the word term Antichrist, again, it, a lot of stuff goes, all, all, the spirit of the stuff that's against Christ is in the world. We feel it. If you haven't felt it, I mean, you're not 
You're not looking around. I mean, it is exponentially increasing as we are going through life right now. Like, I mean, I was talking to some people in our, in our first gathering at just after, just talking about the students. I mean, the way as you're navigating life, as you're, navig- you're navigating a different world than we were. I mean, and it's not just because of technology. It's, it's because there's this advancing spirit of things that are against the doctrines of the Bible. They're against Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus. I think there was a probably a season 30, 40, or 50 years ago, and maybe it's on a you know, more of a wave than, a, than an arc, but it's like you could make Jesus more palatable in that culture because our culture was more really aligned with the things of God. We had a moral code and a moral compass on many different fronts as, as a country. Um, and so churches fit. Jesus fit into that. Well, that is, we're post-Christian culture now. We're beyond that. So now that spirit has now kind of arisen again, right? We've got this, this against Christ spirit, the things of God. That's why people are abandoning their faith. People are looking at the Bible and it's making them uncomfortable with what it says. It hasn't, it hasn't always been that way. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Yeah, the culture itself is beginning to cease to tolerate the things of Jesus. I think in, in the future we'll be in no way... There's, there's going to be a comfortable fit for the church and followers of Jesus into the culture. Like as true believers, I think that's, that's, that's going away. It's not happened fully yet, but I think that is, you know, we're, we're moving into that place. Again, I'm not trying to make you scared. I'm just saying what John's saying. Like there is this, we have to be aware. We can't passively just kind of go about life. And, oh, and then all of a sudden we're like, what happened to churches? You know, what happened to the, the, the freedom of, of worshiping? What happened to a lot of the things that, that we experience now that might be gone at some point. So that's the clarity of the Antichrist and the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. It's two different things. You get that person, the Antichrist, coming at the end, and we've got the spirit of the Antichrist in the world today, in and through people, and just a sense in the culture. Uh, Secondly, how do we interpret the harsh words and treatment for unbelievers mentioned in this passage? Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and they don't believe the things of God, right? That's what it says in the previous verses. They don't bring this teaching. They do not, then you don't take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now, when I read that, it's like, does this mean I'm not supposed to hang out with unbelievers? And I've, I've seen this passage plucked out and used that way. Like, you need to separate yourself from unbelievers. They're gonna, some of their stank's gonna rub off on you and you can't be around them. And it's, the problem with that is we have to look at a passage like this, not just right here. What did we say earlier in the series? We have to use what's called biblical hermeneutics, which sounds like a big word, but it's not a big deal. It's like we interpret the Bible with what's trustworthy, which is the Bible, the rest of the Bible. So what we know when we read this passage, when we look at this, it says, okay, if they don't believe what you believe, then you're not supposed to have them in your household, and you know, you're going to be attached to the wicked work that they do. Okay. What does this mean? Because this is troubling me and it, it makes me feel a little icky. Well, what you, you have to go back to other passages that you know or you have to go back and study other cross-references and passages. Start with one that many of us know. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, Though I'm free from any and all men, I make myself a slave to any and all that I might save some. And then he goes down a list of all the lost type of people that he would hang out with. 
He says, I'm going to hang out with this type of person, the moral person. I'm going to hang out with the immoral person. I'm going to hang out with the Jew. I'm going to hang out with the Gentile. I'm going to hang out with these people. Anybody that's lost, anybody that's desperate, anybody that's outside the kingdom of God, I want to get into a place where I can look at things from their perspective and their point of view so that I might save some by any and all means that I might save some. Does that sound like Paul was hanging out with unbelievers? Yes, it does. In fact, he was working himself into those situations. Now, in the middle of that passage, he says, but I'm not going to lose my bearings in Christ. I will always be attached to what I know is true. But I want to see things from their perspective, through their eyes, so I can open up their mind and heart by the power of the Spirit to who saves and who doesn't, to what saves and what doesn't. So did he hang out with unbelievers? Yes. Jesus was accused of being a glutton, a glutton, and a drunkard. He hung out with the marginalized prostitutes, the worst of the worst. He hung out with the people that didn't believe, the people that were lost, the people that needed salvation. Those, that's who Jesus came for, he says. So are we not supposed to hang out with those people? No. I mean, you can go through all through Scripture. You're, you're going to find instance after instance after instance that will we'll know coming to this passage to filter our our mind through this passage, we know what it can't mean. It can't mean I can't hang out with non-believers. I've got to, now we've got to take, you know, take my kids out of school. We're going to have to move to Montana. We're going to have to put a bonnet on. We're not going to drink Coca-Cola. We're going to churn butter. You know, we're going to do all the weird stuff. No, it can't mean that. God wants us in the world. We're carrying the gospel. We're the ambassadors, right, of the, the amazing thing that's happened to us. So it can't mean that. So then you have to look at it and say, okay, what does it mean? If you go look at verse 9, it, you can kind of see these are people that are, one, they're, they're, they're a whole nother level of deceiver. Like these, there, there's, a, there's an intensity to this type of person and this, this culture that they're saying, be, be wary of, that John's leading and saying to the church, be wary of this. Anyone who, in verse 9, says anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ. I like this this language because John's saying, this, you get the idea that this person was in the church. Like these people were, were they, they know theology. They know church world. They know, they, 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 they can speak intelligently about Christianity. But now they've, they've gone beyond that. They've, they've abandoned. I love this language because it's making it very clear. They've abandoned the doctrine of Christ. They've abandoned, the, they've, They've started to make up something different. They've started to transition into something different. Not only that, they're deceivers. So what does that mean? They're deceiving. They're, they're leading people in the church astray. Matthew would call the, these people what? Wolves in sheep's clothing. People that, they, they, these aren't people that are going to look like, oh my gosh, there's the naughty person in the church. We need to excommunicate them. No, these are, this is a, a slow move, a running ahead. They, they're, they're no longer continuing to hold on to a particular, the, the, the core theology of Christ. That he was born of a woman, that he was born in the flesh, that he was divinity and humanity, that he walked perfectly, right? All the things that we see in our core, what makes us believers, what we believe in about his death, his burial, his resurrection, about salvation itself. So how do we interpret the harsh words and treatment for unbelievers mentioned in this passage? This isn't just an unbeliever. This isn't just an unknowing unbeliever that is in need of salvation. This is a, a whole different type of category. All right? Let's move to the third question because this is where it kind of unpacks why does this matter, right? Number three, why does it matter? 
Well, the first thing is, why does this matter? Well, core doctrine matters. The Bible matters. The Bible matters. Like, we can't get around the fact, like, that's what John's leading us to. John's making the point. Don't bail on the Bible. Don't bail on the truths that matter most. He's speaking to uh, it, 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 one woman, and then a, it seems like he's speaking to her sister and all of their kids. And he's saying that, you know, you're, you got to be careful in the culture that you're in. I don't know if, if they're divorced or if, you know, they're, they're widows, but he's specifically caring for them and saying, hey, I want you to beware of people. You're in a position where you could easily be deceived. You could hitch your wagon to the wrong guy. You could be in the wrong group of friends. Your, your kids could be in the wrong group of friends, and you could be deceived. He's saying, don't leave. The Bible matters. It's trustworthy. Don't bail on it, and don't walk away with anybody that bails on it. You know, a friend of mine, Adam Flint, who is a pastor at 1122, he just, he just posted this, and I love it. It's about the Bible and how trustworthy the Bible is. You can get closer so I can read it. He says, each of these arcs represents one of the 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. Just take a look at that. Isn't that crazy? In other words, the Bible interprets itself. Like you, when, you, when we're looking at the idea of the Antichrist, there's a ton of strings back. You don't have to just sit in one place and go, I don't really understand this. You've got a lot of places that you can go within the same text, within the same book to unpack that. One of the most incredible things about the Bible. Look at all these cross-references. Meaning one verse in the Bible points to another. The white and gray lines represent books of the Bible. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. It would take you 175 years to read the cross-references. I mean, the point that's being made is the Bible is in, it's so rich in the way that it's written. You would think that it was written by one guy that was making all these cross-references, or two dudes that knew each other really well. But look, it's, the Bible was written over a thousand years, spread, right, by about 40 different authors. A lot of them didn't know each other. Most of them didn't. In different locations, which is crazy. How is this even possible that there's so much cross-reference? It is one of the most connected, self-authenticating, consistent documents ever written. It is why we should let the Bible interpret the Bible first. Very important. As we're looking at the Bible, how do we, do we go read somebody else's book that he wrote about the Bible and say, well, this guy said this about the Bible. No, we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Hermeneutics. You may like parts of it, struggle with other parts. Certainly all of us have done that. And dislike other parts of it. But no matter what, you can trust it. And then it talks about this doctor that says, and he's not a Christian. He says, hey, it's like this, the hyperlinks that we see in the world, uh, like on, on the internet, the Bible's had those for forever. Like all these cross-references and hyperlinks that give you cross-references. It's an incredible, incredible document, and it's trustworthy. So the Bible matters. Doctrine matters. The second thing is who you follow matters. John's t saying, hey, don't follow these people. There's deceivers in the world. There's people that are leading you away. And right now, our faces are in these electronic deals all the time. And when there's influencers, there's people that we follow, there's everybody's following somebody, either passively or actively. You might not think you are, but you're being influenced all the time by what your face is in and the people that are posting, the people that are, you know, injecting themselves into your life, you know, and you don't even know it. And we're reading books. We're absorbing things all along the way. We're being led by 
people. We're being led by politics. We're being led by books. We're being led by the internet. I mean, there's all different types of influencers. And and John's saying here, God's saying to all of us in the church, be careful who you're led by. There's people that could could lead you astray. And our our tendency sometimes, I think even in the church, is to, we, we read books. And I'm not telling you not to read a secular book, like a book that's, you know, not a Christian book or, you know, I'm, you know read what you're going to read. But our, our, I think our problem many times is we read, we read a book, we see what the book has to say, and we apply what we've learned from the book to interpreting the Bible, rather than allowing the Bible to interpret the truth of the book. The Bible should be at the top end. It's our 100%. It is the filter, not the book. Sometimes we're like, hey, look what this author said about this. I'm not sure I believe what we're seeing in this text. I don't even know if this is what this means because this guy said this. And, you know, I don't know what that guy also said something. It seems okay, but I kind of like this one better. And I'm going to apply that one to the Bible. We can be influenced by things. We can be taking things in and putting them in a position to lead us in a way that it never was meant to do. So in conjunction with the Bible, who you follow matters. I mean, we're in a culture where people have abandoned their faith. People are deconstructing their faith. You've probably heard that, that term. And it's not always a negative thing to evaluate your faith. When I was in, you know, maybe 2005, I was really rediscovering the, you know, what it meant to be a Christian at that time. And I was reading books like Blue Like Jazz. Anybody Donald Miller fans? Uh, Blue Like Jazz. I've read some, some, some Rob Bell, Velvet Elvis, some of that stuff. And it did ignite something good when it came to my idea of what it meant to read Ephesians 2 really the way that it was written, that you were saved by grace through faith, not of works. Like I, I had lived in this world Christianity-wise where it was all about you know what you did. Obedience was, was the thing that I got to wear that made Jesus love me. That's how I grew up. And all of a sudden I was waking up to the idea that that, that, that was wrong, that hit my sins past, present, future, annihilated by the cross, that Jesus approved of me not because of what I've done, but because I'm a son, because his blood shed on the cross, right? So those things changed. That was the good stuff. And I stayed in that time locked into a church. So I had people speaking into my life, and this is the difference. But eventually, those books and those guys kind of abandoned what they think about their faith and a lot of the tenets of Christianity and the way that they view things. And... There's like core tenets of our faith that all, you know, later books that they wrote, they're like, yeah, that doesn't really matter. That doesn't really matter. That doesn't really matter. Now, was it bad that I read those books? No, but it was, it was on the edge of being dangerous, but, but I stayed what? I stayed in the church. I didn't know. I was like get, getting excited about my faith again because of what these guys wrote. I could have said, okay, I'm going to walk down the road that Rob Bell walked down. In abandoning you know, whatever he ab- abandoned, the way that he thinks and believes about the Bible, or Donald Miller, who doesn't even think church is valid. I could have walked down that road, but instead stayed in church. So deconstructing, as long as you're reconstructing, it's more of, de- not deconstructing, it's reformation. That's what, that's what Martin Luther did in the 15th century. It was reformation. We need to reform. We need to look at the Bible and say, are we are we dedicated to the text that comes from God or have we made it something else and that's what reformation's all about and that's a good thing but there's people that deconstruct their faith like Joshua Harris I got a quote from him it was one of the sadder things pastor of a evangelical you know movement really wrote uh, kiss dating I kiss dating goodbye uh, a lot of people knew that one this is kind of defined you know homeschoolers forever I'm sorry um, 
Um, I, he says, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. I mean, you could go on and on with the amount of people that have come to this conclusion. They've deconstructed their faith, and they've not reconstructed it anyway to where it gets them closer to Jesus. That is not good. That is exactly what, what, what we're seeing here in First and Second John. Like what he's talking about, what he's leaning us towards. And make Now, don't anybody post or tweet saying, I said Joshua Harris was the Antichrist, or I'll get really upset. He's not. But it's that, that spirit of being against Christ that John's saying, hey, be wary of people that are leading your household, that are leading your kids, that are leading you away from Christianity. It can be politics, how we filter that. And thirdly, the church, not only the Bible, who you follow matters, the church matters. This letter is to the church, it's to people, church people. You know, we, we often throw stones at the church, and, and I, I like to say, look, instead of throwing stones at the church, we should be stacking stones to build one another up. That's the way that we should operate. We should cease to attend church where we can throw stones and belong to church where we're family and we're, we're, we're locked together. So it's one of the safest. Now, it's not perfect, but it's one of the safest places for us to be as we carry the gospel. As, it, as the intensity grows in terms of the way that people are going to view the church, especially people, the ones that stick to the Bible. If we stay committed to the Bible, what, what is happening in the UK is eventually going to happen here. And it could happen faster than we think. Like there... Currently, I just read an article that church is there because it's so anti-Christian. If you go to central London, it's like 2% Christian. The churches that are there have become so close-knit. And one of the reasons why is this. In the article, it says, Likewise, biblical community becomes a necessity there. When the majority of the culture is unsympathetic or even hostile to the gospel. In these places, there's a stronger felt need to pray together, worship together, to learn from the word together, to break bread together, to bear burdens together, all the things that God leads us to biblically. It is not common for people to sell their homes in order to move closer to their church family, nor is it a huge deal to do so. It's going to be that. We're, we're, we're moving in that direction, and I'm not meaning to push fear in our way. I just want to say, hey, that slow burn away from the church or the slow burn away from doctrine is happening. For many churches and many people that have left the church that still say, hey, well, you don't need the church for Christianity. Well, the way that we continue in that doctrine and create that consistency and allow the Holy Spirit to, to be locked into who we are is to show up, to be a part of it. Not because not I'm all about, hey, you need, to be, you need to attend church. I mean, you guys are here. Um, but... Yeah, go somewhere. If you're not here, go somewhere. Be a part of a community. Don't just attend. Belong somewhere. Serve there. Work shoulder to shoulder alongside people to carry the gospel and be a part of growing the church. Not because we want big churches, but because we want more and more people to know and have a relationship with Jesus, to be invited into the unending ocean of grace. The church is not just about getting people saved. It's a holistic, redemptive culture where people can see us not that we're better than everybody else, but a different offering. Like we, we offer, there, there's a different life that we inject ourselves into the culture rather than the, the spirit of the Antichrist or the people that are against Christ injecting themselves into the church to dismantle it and deconstruct it. 
for us to inject ourselves into culture, into every, into organizations, into the surf culture here at the beach, into the culture of your, your workplace, the things that you're, the things that you love doing, whether you're, maybe you're a CrossFitter, injecting Jesus into that, where the, the tone of Jesus begins to take over your workplace. It takes over uh, the ESA and the surf culture here at the beach like it did, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago. Wherever you are, that, that that's what the church does. It moves against the tide of the enemy who wants to kill us, who wants to destroy us. He wants to take us out. The last thing is truth matters. Speaking the truth. John here is speaking the truth in love. Wanting these people that are vulnerable in the church to these deceivers to know how much that they're loved, to not walk away from the truth. And I was thinking about the idea, like when your kids go off to college, you got some kids that are going off to college. Let me see, where are you? Don't cry, Abby. When they, when they go off to school, there's all these things that you want to tell them. And for good reason as a parent. You want to speak to them truth. You want to tell them all the things that could happen in school. You want to tell them, you know, how to pack their bags. You want to tell them where to, you know, how to deal, deal with stuff in the dorm. You want to tell them, you know, you know, when, you know when, when you need to be home. You know, you should be driving around at 2 in the morning. You know, what are you doing? Nothing good happens after 1 or 12 or 11, depending on the parent. And you, you're, you're speaking all of this truth to them. Why? Not because you want them to know a bunch of facts and you want them to be terrified. Why are you speaking truth as a parent to your kid? Because you love them. Because you love them. This whole passage... You know, it could sound like, oh, this is all the scary stuff we're not supposed to do. We're supposed to be worried about this. We're supposed to be worried about the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, all the things that are going to happen. What do we do? Our kids go to this school. They go to Fletcher. They go to Ponte Vedra. Are they going to, you know, is the Antichrist there? I don't even know if he's there. What am I going to do? I send my kids there. I'm going to take them out. of I homeschool and send them to Providence? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. The tone of today, one, is that we have this amazing hope. That, that, that God is speaking the truth over us, that he delights in us, that nothing can separate us from him, that we, we were loved way before we loved him, that his love never ends, that his love compels us, that his love drives out fear, that his love is evident in the cross. We want to know that, that he, he loves us. The enemy wants us to think that, that outside these walls and in the society is where we can fill in the insecurities of life and, and Jesus is coming to say don't listen to the enemy he wants to lie to you I want you to know that I love you and just like these ladies were probably in that vulnerable position of maybe losing their husband to death or whatever position that they were in John's coming and saying hey ladies don't get taken away don't hitch your wagon to the, the wrong group of people or the wrong guy I think Jesus is saying to somebody that's walked in here I want you to know, you, you, you've, you've probably thought a lot of different things. Maybe you thought God abandoned you. Maybe you thought your family abandoned you. Maybe you've come in broken. Maybe you're wondering why you're suffering or why you're sick. And Jesus is, is speaking over you in a loud voice in the truth of his word and the truth of his spirit that's here to say he loves you. He loves you. He's, he's right now by the power of his spirit, he's giving you a vision of him on the cross bleeding out into the soil on Mount Calvary for the purpose of you knowing that he did it for you, that you needed it. There was no way you could figure out a way to get out of the mess you're in on your own. But he did it because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Let's stand.
God, we are amazed and we stand in awe of your word. It makes us laugh sometimes. It makes us nervous sometimes. It makes us cry. But more than anything, it, it, it leads us to this place of knowing that we have a relentless father that loves us, that was willing to give up everything for us. So God, always lead us to that truth. Lead us away from fear and lead us to confidence in you. Let us be steadfast in knowing and believing what you've done for us. In Jesus' precious name.